Welcome to the UX Podcast, where we learn how to turn a rockstar business into a UX machine. UX introduces a simple formula for personal and business growth based around one principle. We can't solve big, valuable problems alone. Starting with this principle, UX equips and empowers us to pour ourselves into people and systems, scale authentically, and create a life of exponential freedom and impact. And now, let's get started with the latest episode of the UX Podcast. What's up, Rockstars? Welcome back to the UX Podcast. And I know if you're listening to this show that you want to dominate a niche, and that's exactly what we're talking about today. Our guest is Mark Amtower. He is the preeminent marketing and LinkedIn advisor to the most successful small, mid-tier, and large government contractors. What that means is that Mark has carved out one of the most unique niches that I have ever seen, especially in the world of marketing. In other words, Mark is the category king of, of marketing advice for the government contracting market, right? So if you're a company and you wanna sell into government contracts, you wanna land medium-sized, big government contracts, whatever the case is, if you have something to sell into the government sector, Mark has become your go-to person. And the way that he's done that is exactly the pattern for becoming a category king in any sort of coach consultant or agency role. And so if you're in the audience and you're listening to it and you're looking for a way to differentiate yourself and position yourself in the market so that you cannot be competed with, this is a phenomenal episode. So we talk with Mark about his journey, some of the specific tactical things he's done to establish and really take that ground as the marketing advisor to the government contracting world. In other words, how he staked out that claim to that space. And then how he followed that up by not just claiming to own it, but reinforcing the ownership of that by a couple of very specific things. Number one, by making sure that he is extremely well connected and maintains relationships, a network of relationships through LinkedIn. And he goes into exactly how he does that on a daily basis. Number two, we talk about how he builds and reinforces his kind of high ground position as the leader in his field in this space by doing thought leadership uh, videos and audios and uh, and articles for the trade publications, right? So Mark hosts a podcast as well that's very popular in his space. Uh, it's one of those things where you would never know it existed if you're not in that space, but if you're in that space, you can't escape it. And that's exactly what you want. You want to be micro famous in the specific area where you sell into and leave everything else to somebody else. And that's exactly what Mark has done. So we talked about how to execute your thought leadership at a high level and how to penetrate a company and generate real relationships using LinkedIn. So there is a bunch of fantastic stuff. But what I want you to really hear and pay attention to in the conversation is the progression and how Mark arrived at and decided to stake his claim to this space. And then everything strategically that he's done over the last you know 30 plus years has all been to reinforce that position. And it has worked beautifully. It's worked to perfection. And that's what I want for all of you. So if you're using something like podcasting, if you're writing for trade publications, if you're doing some of the tactical things, that's awesome. But I really want you to pay attention to the strategy because everything flows from the decision that Mark made to stake out a very, very defined space that he could own. And he has come to own it. So without further ado, here's Mark Amtower. Mark, officially welcome to the UX Podcast. Matt, thank you for having me, man. It's a pleasure. 
Thanks so much. I'm really excited for the conversation because we've been we've been chatting offline up to and, and just before we hit record and just talking a lot about what you do and, and when you would like to get a hold of somebody to help them develop a specialty because you've got uh, obviously a very deep, very clear specialty of your own. You've seen all the benefits that accrues to that. Uh, so I'd love for you to speak to that just to kind of start it off, start us off is how did you find your specialty? And then we'll talk a little bit about how you help others do the same. Well, it, it's weird. My degrees are in American literature, so I'm, I'm qualified to <laughs> so do. You're, so you're right on track, doing exactly yeah. maximizing that degree. Right. Uh, <laughs> so you know, I can read, I can write, I can think. Uh, speaking is part of the equation, but that didn't necessarily come along with my degrees. Mm -hmm. uh, but you know, in graduate school, I was a telemarketer and uh, spent a lot of time uh, after graduate school. Uh, telemarketing management training and uh, um, IT training for Fortune 100 and government clients. And I looked around the market at that time and nobody was dealing with selling to the government, marketing to the government as a separate discipline. Right. So the, the marketing side, I had been doing it now for uh, about two and a half years with two different employee, employers. And I decided I, I, I really didn't like working for other people. Uh, and I thought I could, uh, I could create a niche on marketing to the government. And mm -hmm. that was January 1, 1985. Yeah. And it's obviously worked out. And uh, it, what's interesting about you is that I, as far as I can tell, you seem to be the category king of that entire category, which part of it is because you seem to have gotten there first and really established it as its own separate discipline. I'm curious, though, like in those early years, when you're kind of creating a new niche category, did you run into the resistance of why do I need to know how to market to the government better? They should just buy my stuff. Like, did you run against like the, the bias against marketing with those kind of, with the dealing with very large industries selling back to the government? I, I, I run across that today. <laughs> oh, fantastic. So that's so, still a thing. Yeah. Okay. You know, if, if there's any kind of budget crunch, marketing is usually the first to suffer, right? Yeah. You and I have been there many times. So early on, it was a matter of identifying key issues that were problem areas. So mm -hmm. remember, I started in the mid 80s. I started also compiling very targeted lists of key people in the government, selling it to industry in a little D-based program that produced mail labels. Okay? Oh, interesting. Okay. So you were one of the first list brokers in that space. Exactly. Okay. And, and as a result, I started to meet with government mail managers. Nobody even knew there were mail managers in government, right? Okay. So I would go visit mail rooms and I would see what got through and what didn't. So I identified problem areas for people mailing into the government right. and then started talking about it. Okay. So, and they, and you know, even some of the publications weren't getting through the mail rooms and huh. people wanted to know why. I knew why. Okay. God, that's a brilliant strategy. Okay. That's really interesting. And that, and that to me is one of the biggest benefits of really going deep on a specialty is that if you're a generalist, you might not even know, not only do you not know how to solve that problem, you might not even be aware that it exists or has the potential to exist. Exactly. So, uh, but you know, direct, how much direct business mail do you get as a business owner today? Mm, not much. Yeah. Very, very little. It, it, it kind of went away, right? Yeah. So, yeah. Well, <laughs> yes. I was going to say, I think there are smart people out there still doing it. Um, well, yeah. Yeah. But, but not so much in my market. So right. every market morphs. And as a marketing guy, 
you have to morph with the tactics and the venues that change what you do. Yeah. Yeah, 100% agreed. All right, so fast forward. So now you're able to work with, and you would love to get a hold of people and companies and consultants that are selling back to the government before they really settle in on their specialty, unless they've picked a really good one already, and then that's a, that's a good situation to get into. But let's say you get a hold of somebody or, or a company before they've really settled on their specialty. So they have a skill set, they have passions, they have things they'd like to do. Um, what? Give me some of the, just the breakthrough, maybe some of the key questions that you would ask somebody that helps you and them uncover kind of that sweet spot where they can do what they love to do, but still make money doing it. For, you know, for my market, uh, which agencies you currently sell to is important because, you know, in, in the B2B world, it's called account-based marketing. In Mm -hmm. the government world, it's called agency-based marketing, ABM. So Mm -hmm. we've been doing this in, in the government market forever. I'm assuming people in the B2B world have been doing it too, but it seems to have revitalize itself. So I want to know who they're selling to and I want to know what they're selling most of. So if it's a product or service, you know, you have to be known for something. Yes. hundred percent agree. And once you're in, then you can start branching out a little bit. Once they trust you, you can bring other things into the equation, but generalists usually are not going to get in the door. You know, if you're a 10-person company and you claim to be, you know, an IT company or a systems integrator, eh, you know, wrong answer, Jack. Um, you know, it just doesn't yeah. flow. What do you do best? You know, class, classic scenario. In, in 1992, I was invited to sit on the board of the National Computer Security Association. Not for my technical expertise, which is non-existent. I was going to say, <laughs> I'm assuming it was vast, vast technical expertise. Yeah, yeah, yeah. right. Uh, no, I was the marketing guy for right. that, okay? Good. But there was no funding for computer security in the government market in the early 90s. The funding didn't occur really in significant numbers until 12, 14 years later. So I've watched that industry morph you know, now it's the biggest news, right? Hacking and... and yeah, I was going to say, so it took until after 9-11 for them to actually set aside a real budget for government computer security? Yep. Wow. Boy, they move at lightning speed over there. Goodness. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, we, we race, race glaciers here. Yeah, clear. Okay, so you're, so you're looking at that and sitting in 92, 93, wondering but how I do did. you sell something to literally a, a, a category that doesn't have any money set aside for it? They don't even see it as a problem. Exactly. But I've been monitoring computer security or that arena since then, and I've watched it morph multiple times. So now when a company calls to me and says, we do network security, I make them dwell down there. What parts of network security do you Are you doing uh, continuing diagnostics and mitigation? Are you doing intrusion detection? Are you doing internal threats? What part are you doing? Where do you make your money? Where's your expertise? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So basically you're, you're looking at it going, first of all, who do you sell to? Because you want to know how sophisticated is the market. Do they understand, do they have really an awareness of what they're selling? And then you're trying to match it, help them match it up to the thing that they sell the best and then figure out, okay, is there a budget set aside already? And what's it set aside for? And are they, have we already reached the point where you have to drill down and develop a specialty within a specialty? Because if, it, if it's a sophisticated enough market, then something too broad is going to, is just not going to get them in the door at all. So they have to drill right. down further. I think that's exactly. what we, a lot of us struggle with that. 
You know, yeah. I think anybody with a consultant skill set, and I'm sure you probably struggle with it a little bit too, is what do you want to be known for? You know, if there was a bunch of government marketing contractors or consultants out there when you got in, you'd have to, you would have had to drill down even further. Yeah, exactly. And then, so the, the, the more finite you can be, so uh, continuing diagnostics and mitigation, but got, got, you know, number one, an acronym, CDA. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's always big in the government market. <laughs> I was going to say, is that when you know it's developed into its own like niche categories when it gets an acronym? Exactly. But more importantly in the niche category, the General Services Administration through its multiple award schedules assigns special item numbers to very particular things. Mm. And only in the last couple of years have they begun to, to parse down into this arena. And CDM was the first one to get its own SIN, special item number. Okay. So, yeah. So, yeah, you could, you could see the parallels in the, just the straight B2B world in the sense of like, what, when does the trade publications start to reflect back the terminology that the companies use? Right. Right. And, yeah. and when, when does uh, continuing diagnostics and mitigation become CDM and you don't have to explain it? Right. Yeah. If people, yes. If people understand what the acronym means, because it's a category that everybody knows. That makes exactly. total sense. Okay. Yeah. So you're trying, so if, so the, the sweet spot there is doing, taking what the company does best, hopefully what it also makes the most profit at, which are not always two different things, but ideally they are. And you really zero in on helping them become known for just that one thing, get their foot in the door get that service sold and then start building trust that they can sell other services. Right. Because everything in that arena ultimately links back to, to other things in that arena. So if you can get in the door with one, particularly a nasty problem one or an infrastructure one, then you have the opportunity once you're inside to expand the scope of your work. Yeah. Yeah. And I think to, I mean, to me, strategically, it makes sense. And I'm, of course, I already agree with the point of view. I think for the, for anybody that's listening, that's struggling with how, how to do that, how to develop and really hone in on that specialty. To me, it comes down to a couple of fears. So how do you as a consultant help address the fears of cutting themselves off and not being known for 17 different things? You, you may believe it's not possible, they may not agree. <laughs> they may think they can be known for 17 different things. So it's not like they, have, they don't automatically sign on to that, that they can only be known for one thing. How do you overcome that? Uh, with, with some of them, obviously, I don't. Hmm. But I, I use examples in the market where, you know, there's a little company in Tennessee, Sword and Shield, that, hmm. that uh, between 2012 and 2016, this is a small, like, 40-person company, right? Hmm. They did $500 million worth of CDM product sales to the government through one contract. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I mean, wow. you know, market, you know, examples from your own market, if mm-hmm. they don't drive the point, you're talking to a pet rock, leave the room, find another prospect. <laughs> That is a good point, though. When we're trying to convince clients of things, it's so much better to to give them a narrative, a story of somebody else who's done it and followed what, you know, either just they're, they're a good example of taking your advice or they did it without taking your advice. They just did the thing that you're recommending your client do. But it, like it, narrative is so much more persuasive stories and examples, way more persuasive than just trying to argue over theory and stats. 
Yeah, exactly. So, and, and you know, this from, from being a podcaster mm. stories work. Yeah. People who don't tell stories are going to sell less than those that do. Yeah. Yeah. That's really good. Okay. So let's shift gears and talk a little bit about your own kind of uh, strategy. We talked a little bit before we recorded about you, you have a certain set of tactics and metrics that you track for yourself on LinkedIn because LinkedIn got big circa what, 2010, 2011, uh, that space. So take me back then. Um, and why did you to kind of decide to jump into LinkedIn? And then we'll talk a little bit about how you track your activities there. All right. I jumped into LinkedIn in February 11, 2004. <laughs> so, so, um, you know, and it's funny because, uh, uh, I don't know if you know Jason Albert or not. He wrote a book in 07 called I'm on LinkedIn. Now what? Right. <laughs> and that's where we all found ourselves early on LinkedIn. Mm-hmm. So, you know, come February, I'll have been there 15 years, but it wasn't until 07 when I read his book and David Meerman Scott's first edition of the new rules in marketing and PR that I understood completely how communications was changing via all of the tools that were coming into play via Web 2.0. Mm-hmm. So uh, David didn't even mention LinkedIn in his book. So I took everything Jason talked about in the LinkedIn book, applied it to David's book, mm-hmm. and started growing a, a very targeted network. So uh, in order to succeed on LinkedIn, I believe you have to start with your goals. So my goals on LinkedIn were to be one of the most connected people in the government market, one of the most uh, well-known people in the government market, and one of the most trusted, credible people in the government market. Mm-hmm. Um, I've always been known for speaking my mind regardless of the venue. Doesn't necessarily mean I'm always right, but you know, given my background, I, I usually am. Mm. So that, that helps. Uh, you, you can't be credible if you're wrong all the time. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. So you start with a good foundation of, you know, you're, you're a good analyst of what the government is doing and where it's going. Right. So, uh, so by 2010, I was monitoring what the general services administration was doing in negotiating with the social media platforms on how they could use the data of government employees. And once they signed the agreements, I saw the influx of feds. So the first thing I started doing was a census of how many feds by agency and by operating division within agencies were on LinkedIn. So they can pull that off. They they have company profiles just like you and me. Okay. So you can track down the the real information in terms of what their headcount is and the org structure and stuff like that, and then compare it to what you find on LinkedIn and kind of come up with a rough ratio. No, I come up with exact numbers and exact people. So I had a conversation earlier this morning. A guy said, you know, I want to do business uh, with NIH. So while we were talking, I looked up National Institutes of Health on on LinkedIn and told him, you know, there's 22,800 or so people at NIH on LinkedIn. Who do you need to get in touch with? And he's sitting there, how many people? (laughs) You know, there's, there's over 2 million feds on LinkedIn. Every other year I do a census okay. and there's 2.1 million feds as of April on LinkedIn. And that, that's a very significant number because a lot of them are in management roles. Okay. 
And how do you how do you get a sense of how active they are and how seriously they're taking it? Because you because it's easy to look at a social media platform from your perspective and go, this is something I could do. It's a whole other thing to look at it from the audience perspective and realize how they're actually spending their time there and how much time they're spending there. So how do you gauge that? Uh, I, I, I have a very difficult time gauging on a one-on-one -on -one basis, but on a collective basis. Um, one would assume that procurement people in government really don't want to reach out a lot on social media, right? Okay. Because everybody's going to want to connect to them. Okay. So I speak at the National Contract Management Association on how to use LinkedIn in the anonymous mode to vet subject matter experts and companies. Mm, nice. I have a hundred people in my session. It's a big conference. Um, you know, I, I know they use it. I know they use it a lot for vetting mm -hmm. and the more sophisticated of them do most of their work in an anonymous mode. Mm -hmm. But there are proactive people in government. I've connected with several senior people in government and we share hundreds, if not, you know, over a thousand connections. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. Yeah. yeah. So you can see it like over the years, you can kind of see that people are responding. When you reach out, you do get responses. You may not know on a per person basis, they're spending 20 minutes versus an hour on LinkedIn, how that's growing, but you can at least tell that kind of get a sense of how the market responds to it. So that's good. So how does that translate into your daily activities and what, what are the few things that you like to track? I, I like to track, um, you know, who, who's reaching out to who, how many connections we share. So, and, and let me back up here a second. I'm not doing all of the reaching out to connect to these people. A lot of them are reaching out to connect to me. And these include senior people in government. So okay. the visibility. This has to do with kind of your overall authority strategy we'll talk about in a second with the radio show and the podcast and all that stuff. So that makes sense. Exactly. So people reaching out to you. So you're not doing 100% yeah. of the connecting yourself. Right. Okay. So I, I, uh, with the govies, it's about 50, 50. Okay. So, but on, on, on a, uh, on a daily basis, usually I'm, I'm looking on behalf of clients. So, uh, if, if we work with the, uh, the guy who wants to work with NIH, mm -hmm. I'll pare down those 22,000 or so, uh, people at NIH and find the ones that, that are most likely candidates predicated on where they are in NIH and what their job function area is. And I'll start working with him to get connected with those people and develop a strategy for outreach and visibility. Right. Okay. So that makes sense. So you're, so, you're, so you're spending time on behalf of clients. Um, so what, what sort of things when you're talking about actually nailing it down to a strategy on, on reaching out and, and what are some of the things that you just track to grow your personal business on LinkedIn? Is there anything that you pay attention to that you make sure that you stay consistent with? Um, I stay consistent with reaching out to people who see me speak. So everything I do is interrelated. I do, you know, we spoke about this before off air. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I average about 20 public speaking gigs a year. Yep. Uh, I pick up a lot of business cards at those events. So I write for one of the trade pubs. Mm -hmm. I have the radio show. So I have a lot of visibility. So when some people are, are looking at my profile or give me a business card, I vet them back, usually in an open mode, not in an anonymous right. mode. Right, you want them to see it, yeah. Right, exactly, so that's the yeah, first step, right? Uh, so, and, and the higher up the food chain they are, so like if it's a, a fairly large company and it's a VP or some other C-level, uh, I'm going to uh, 
have a very specific reason for wanting to reach out to connect. So I'm constantly mapping companies that I need to penetrate uh, and key people within those companies. I also do the same thing with agencies. So when I want people in a particular government agency to connect with me, I'll start looking at their profile, yeah. uh, you know, not, not in a stalking way, but probably, you know, twice a month for a couple of months and, and they'll get curious enough to look back. Right. You know, the weirdest thing I found about LinkedIn, and maybe it's not, is that the most popular feature is who's viewed my profile. Yeah, isn't that interesting? I remember we talked about that offline and it's so, it's, it's such a, uh, it's such a primal thing. It, it really is. You know, it's like you're looking over your shoulder all the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we're very, we're, we're social creatures. We want to see where we're at, like in the, in the social hierarchy. I think it's, it's was what it comes down to. We want to see who else is paying attention. So yeah, that's an easy way. So um, I can see why the government on the government side or the people being sold too, they would want to check people out in anonymous mode. But if you're, if you're the thought leader, if you're the expert, if you're the one that's doing the selling, just do everything in open mode because the more visibility, the better. Right. And for the govies who actually know me, they know I'm not going to try themselves to sell them something from me because mm-hmm. they don't need what I do. Right. Uh, yeah. But by the same token, those that, that, that know me know that if they have a question or need an area, uh, uh, a person with subject matter expertise in something fairly esoteric, they know that I probably will be able to introduce them to someone. Yeah. And, and the thing that I like about the, what you've done with your strategy, and it goes all the way back to the D-base, and it goes back to what the, just you, you briefly glossed over this, but I wanted to come back to it. That strategy you mentioned of speaking to the, the govies uh, like on their topic, of just uh, like, how, how do you get better at vetting people? And you're basically teaching them, like you did a session essentially on how to be better at their jobs. Right. So it had nothing to do with what you sell. And when, when I look at the people that I admire the most that are experts in their field, they're not just experts at what they do. They're experts at what their clients who they're selling to do. Like there's, there's a higher level of expertise. And I think that's definitely what you've reached. Right. And, and, you know, I don't know if you know this about me or not, but I also teach graduate school at George Washington university. Mm -hmm. I have, uh, I teach the marketing class in the government contracting master's program and it's a required class. And more than half of my students are contracting officers in the government. And <laughs> the ones on the receiving end of this marketing you're teaching how to improve. Exactly. Okay. exactly. But their <laughs> feedback is absolutely critical for uh-huh. me. Um, uh-huh. You know, and, and to see their perspective on what we do yeah. and, and their perpetual denial of, Oh, this doesn't influence me. Mm-hmm. I'm going, yeah, bullshit. Yeah. <laughs> well, and it's good for you just long-term. You've got this incredible, uh, essentially like it, like on the ground, real time intelligence of who's going to be making the decisions three and four years out. So you know exactly where the market is going. I, I know where the market is going, but here's the next major shift. And, and you're going to be ahead of this uh, more than me. You know, the millennials are going to be 50% of the job force within three or four years. Yeah, God help they, us all. Well, well, yeah, but I mean, think, think of it this way how they communicate via the web is radically different than anything I've been used to. Yes. Okay. And they use tools that we currently, currently do not use in the government market. Right. So that's going to change. Yeah. Well, what do you think of the next ones that are coming? What, like what platforms do you have in mind? 
I have no friggin' clue. <laughs> <laughs> you know, link, LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook. I, I'm on Google Plus kind of in a default mode, uh-huh. and, and we know it's going away. But Google Plus has hosted the best community of LinkedIn experts for the last several years. And it's just called the LinkedIn expert community. Okay. So, and, and everybody decided to migrate there, so LinkedIn couldn't control it. <laughs> oh, nice. <laughs> that's brilliant. Oh, I love it. Okay. Oh, man, that's funny. Yeah, I can, I can see more communication tools coming in, definitely. Um, and that's going to be interesting to see that go, go down. All right. So let's take a step back for a second. Cause I've got one more question. We'll talk about the authority strategy for you in a second. But, um, if somebody has connections in that world, uh, and wants to, uh, to learn more about you, get connected, check out the radio show and the podcast, et cetera. How do they kind of get into your world? Uh, LinkedIn is the best place to do it. <laughs> uh, I mean, you can go in through the website, but that's like a three-step process. You go there, you mm-hmm. can fill out a form and send it to me. You know, just yeah. reach out to me on LinkedIn and, and don't send the form letter. Tell me why you want to connect. Yes. Yes. That is a big one. All right. So let's finish with this. So thought leadership and authority to me, to me, you've got it down. You're, you're the, the def, like the definition of someone who's really defined a category and stake themselves out as the person who naturally leads it. Um, so I'm, I'm just curious, give me an idea of what your strategy has been like over the last couple of decades and just how all this stuff works together for you. Um, I, I think the biggest thing is, you know, develop a continuous learning process. Uh, mm-hmm. I attend events, I, I, I always attend events where I'm speaking, right? Because I have, I have no choice. But, you know, for, I, I, I speak at the Association of Proposal Management Professionals. I'm not a proposal person, but I sit in on several sessions to understand that process, to understand where what I do fits in. Mm-hmm. At the National Contract Management Association, I'm definitely not a contracting officer, but I'll still sit in on, you know, how do you evaluate these certain types of proposals? Mm-hmm. I want to know. So yeah. you have to, if, if you want to be a subject matter expert, if you want to stand out in any field, developing your own continuing education, not just, you know, some cert that the industry offers, but, mm-hmm. but a perpetual learning thing, a daily learning thing. I, I don't know how many information feeds you'd get, but I get probably 40 a day. Yeah. And I I will scan every one of them and I'll set aside a couple for deeper review at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. But I need to know what's going on yeah. in this market. It's the biggest market in the world. Yeah. You know, nobody spends more than the U.S. federal government. Look at your wallet. Yeah. Uh, you know. <laughs> I try not to. Um, <laughs> talk, talk to your accountant. <laughs> yeah, so I, I agree. I like that. So you have to have a, a rhythm, essentially, of, of continuous learning so that you're constantly refreshing and updating your own expertise. And then that's what gives you something to put back out into the world that reinforces that you are the guy. Right. So that I, I write for, uh, for t- the last 11 years, I've written for Washington Technology, mm-hmm. the main trade pub for the contracting universe. Uh, I've been interviewed in Lord knows how many other publications. I have the radio show. I start my 13th year on the radio, on Federal News Radio in February. So I, and it was the first show that targeted government contractors. Mm. Um, so uh, I speak at 20 events a year. I can't go out and say the same stuff every time. Yes. 
Yeah. So, well, and you're, and they're all because you, you reeled off some of the events, like you're speaking at very different events. There's no way you could have the same topic for all those. You're speaking to radically different audiences. And uh, so, yeah, you have, you take your, your continuous learning and cycle that back into, you know, you're talking about five or 10 or maybe even 15 different topics a year, maybe. Right. But most of it actually revolves around LinkedIn, but how people use LinkedIn is going to differ between, you know, if you're a procurement officer or if you're on the industry side and you're a proposal manager or your industry side and your sales, marketing, BD, or C-level. Right. So each of those has different things they should be doing on LinkedIn. So I can tie it back to my core capability. So okay, gotcha. Yeah, that's really good. It's specific yeah. tactical application, but it all goes back to your point of view and what you're known for. Exactly. Yeah, that's, that yeah. is the sweet spot to me. Like if you're going to speak a lot and you have to speak to different audiences and you can't just deliver the same canned thing that creates demand for what you do, I think that's the next best alternative is you come up with just variations that lead them back down the same path and reinforce the one thing you're known for. Right. And, and tied into LinkedIn is built, you know, what we talk about building mm -hmm. a subject matter expert platform, yeah. sharing content that you develop. So I, I develop a lot of content. I also have a newsletter that's been going out pretty continuously since 91. Mm -hmm. Um, and now it goes out exclusively through LinkedIn. Mm -hmm. Um, hmm. so you know, there, there's all of this stuff that leads back. And I, and, and I mentioned this to you earlier on, you know, I've been on the radio now, uh, 12 years, almost 13, and it is podcastable, even though it's a terrestrial station. Yeah. So I'm on iTunes and podcast one of those things. Um, but I have people that I meet for the first time. And, and one of the first things I'll say is, you know, I've been listening to you for years. <laughs> <laughs> Why haven't you reached out? <laughs> yes, exactly. I know we were laughing about that before we hit record. And it's so funny. Um, I, I think here, here's the good part about that. Because you, you can't fault the human nature. You can't fight that. There's going to be people that just don't take action for whatever reason. Um, but I, I do think it is evidence that the more you have a platform where, where you're able to speak and deliver a point of view consistently you can slowly change people's beliefs over time. And I think one of the evidences of those things is those people coming up that say, I've, I've been listening to you for years and I've been doing X, Y. I haven't reached out, but I've been doing X, Y, and Z, or you, you shifted my mind on these three things. I love to hear that. It's one of the best parts of podcasting. Yeah, so quick aside, uh, I, I do the, uh, I respond to the announcements that you get through LinkedIn, so the birthdays, the job changes. Mm -hmm. So I, I see somebody that I've been connected to for 10, 11 years. Uh, I say, congrats on, on, on the new position. Uh, you know, we should touch bases. And she writes back and she said, it's funny, when I got this, I dusted off all of my stuff from you over the years. And I'm going, what do you mean it's dusty? Um, you know, <laughs> but, but, you know, she, she, she pointedly said, you know, to do this new gig, I went back and reviewed your stuff. Yeah. How cool was that? Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a brave new world. I love it. And, and I love how, uh, like, all the things that you're doing reinforce each other. Right. So you take this, the cycle of continuous learning and then putting out content consistently, combine that with speaking engagements. It all, to me, that's like the perfect recipe blend for the perception of authority in a category. Right. Yeah. And, like you can't you know, just do speaking. You can't just do a radio show. Like it's, it's that combination, like you being in, in 
several of those places all like it does more than just any one of those parts could. Uh, uh, what's his name? Alan, Alan Weiss in mm. uh, million dollar consulting called it creating gravitational pull. Yeah. Um, and, and you know, that's what you and I do. That's, you know, for ourselves and the people that we work with, um, um, all of these things should tie in together. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I'm just fortunate to be, uh, involved in the market doing something that's I think important and having a great time. Yeah. <laughs> you can tell, you can tell you enjoy it, which I love. <laughs> I mean, if, if you don't, doing what you and I do, trying to stand out in the crowd is damn near impossible because you either become arrogant or you look bored. <laughs> right? Well, I mean, is that, Oh, that's true. You've seen people like that. Yeah. You know, they're, they're either, you know, so arrogant, they won't even sign their book for you at a, at a meeting mm-hmm. or, you know, they, they, you know, they just drone on and on. Yeah, I know this stuff, but who gives a crap? Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right, Mark, this is a blast. I, I so appreciate your time. I hope people connect with you on LinkedIn. You get a flood of, of connections because, uh, yeah, we joke around about people listening and then never reaching out. So hopefully this audience uh, actually takes the step and reaches out and connects to you. Well, tell them to give me a reason to do so. Yes. Do not just send an empty connect request. Send a there personalized message with a reason you should connect. There you go. <laughs> All That's right, the last. <laughs> Now, I believe that clarity releases energy. So I hope that this episode creates clarity for you by laying out a path forward in your business. Now, if you're interested in starting a podcast like this to help you break into a new industry or to establish yourself as an authority in a niche market, let's talk. We have a complete done for you podcasting service. That is my agency that I'm building and growing. And I'd love to talk to you about what we can potentially do for you. You can learn more at pursuingresults.com to get a sense of what our service is all about. And if you're ready, if you're really seriously thinking about starting a podcast, I'm happy to brainstorm your ideas and talk about the positioning of your podcast within the market, something that you can take away whether we end up working together or not. So you can grab a time on my calendar for a podcast brainstorm call at bookjohnson.com. That is bookjohnson.com. I just want to thank you again for listening to the show, for leaving us a rating and a review on iTunes and more importantly, for investing your time, your energy, your attention into the show. It really means the world to me that you would do that. So again, this is the UX podcast where we learn how to turn a rockstar business into a UX machine, and we'll see you on the next episode.